Well, it is a new year. Happy New Year to you all. Welcome to 2024. Perhaps at the new year, we're a little more conscious of time, the passage of time. So I want to begin with a little exercise. I want you to imagine that you are visiting Grace Baptist Church not in 2024, but in 2050. So 26 years from now, and I just want you, for the sake of imagining, to think that that you've decided to move away for those 26 years. So perhaps, like me, you love the snow, so you've decided to move to Harbin or to Canada or somewhere colder to enjoy the climate up north, and you've come back after all those years to visit Grace Baptist Church and to spend a few months here. You want to connect with old friends. Uh, You want to see how things are. So you've come back to Singapore. You you find that there are all kinds of uh, advancements. You can now pay for food at the Hawker Center with a retinal scan, and uh, there's no longer private car ownership. It's just electric-free cars everywhere that you can move around. So there's all kinds of new things. But you come to GBC, to Grace Baptist Church. You want to find out how the church is doing. So you meet and talk with people, and over your time, you have some encouraging conversations, but you also have some conversations that stand out as concerning to you. So first, one one member tells you about a gal in the church who was her good friend, uh, involved in the church, but about a year ago, she just stopped coming out of the blue, and she tried to contact her and and got the response that, I've moved on, and I don't want to talk about it. So she had asked some other, other, others in the church to help her reach out to this person, but everybody just kind of shrugs and says, what can you do? Hope she's okay. That's it. The woman you're talking to feels weird every time she thinks about her friend, or every time she sees her picture in the membership directory, but she doesn't know what to do. You go over a little bit later to a couple's house for dinner, and they confide in you a struggle that they're having. One of their close friends in the church recently confided that they had been taking money unethically from their company. Nobody has found out, but he felt guilty and and so shared with them about it. They're wondering if they've done something wrong by not telling anyone. But some time went by, and they just found it easier to let it go. But their conscience is is bothering. By this time, you're you're kind of wondering what's going on. But you press ahead, and the next Sunday, you try to meet some people you don't know. Strike up a conversation with a woman who seems a bit down. She's standing by herself after the church service. You start talking to her, and she begins to unfold a, a truly terrible story about her husband leaving her and her son to go marry another woman after 17 years of marriage. The kicker is he's in full-time Christian ministry, continues to call himself a Christian minister. What makes her the saddest is that the church hasn't said anything about it at all. Well, you're realizing that things are not well in some ways in the church, but you pray and you just Try to shake it off and keep meeting people. You later meet a college student who tells you that he's decided that though 
He knows what the Bible says forbidding homosexuality. He thinks being a homosexual is intrinsic to his identity and that God would want him to be happy more than he would want him to keep the rules. He's declared that he's both a Christian and will be living in a homosexual lifestyle. The last week that you're there, you meet a young man who tells you he decides that he no longer agrees with the idea that we are justified before God just by our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. He agrees more with the Roman Catholic position that faith is combined with works to produce merit and to gain a person's entrance into heaven. He tells you not to worry, that we, we all basically believe the same things about Jesus and the, the particulars of how we understand the details are not that important. What surprises you the most as you take stock of these conversations is that the church has largely been silent about them. No, nothing seems to have been said or done. Things are just rolling along. Individuals in the church would say they care about each other, but there didn't seem to be any impetus or any mechanism to speak into the issues or deal with the individuals involved. It, it seems like the motto of GBC has become live and let live. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. All right, now, what do you think about all of that? I dressed those five cases up a bit, but I didn't make them up. They're all about people that I've known. I assume they are the sort of things that are going on in churches all around us. Real, live questions. And I don't pretend for a minute in any of those scenarios that it's easy to know what to do. I don't assume they're all going to happen in any one church all at once, but I really do want you to imagine what a church like that would be like. A church where perhaps right and wrong is addressed from the pulpit up front, but it isn't really lived in the community. Where there's right doctrine, but no discipline. Maybe it sounds attractive in some ways. I mean, nobody likes conflict. I think all of us on some level want to have a community that doesn't feel judgmental. But we should ask, what, what does the church lose when politeness trumps holiness? We're in a short series to begin the new year entitled, The Church Jesus Wants. We thought last week about the fact that Jesus wants a church founded on the truth. Well, this morning we're looking at the second mention of church in Matthew's gospel, and we'll see here that Jesus wants a church that reflects God's holy love. If you're taking notes, that's the big idea this morning. You may want to write that down so you can talk about it later. Jesus wants a church that reflects God's holy love. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 20. It's found on page 773 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Page 773, as always, if you need a copy of God's Word, you feel free to take that Bible home. We want those things flying off the pews. So take that Bible home and read it if you'd like. 
Matthew 18, verses 10 through 20. Uh, The outline we'll be thinking about from these verses, a church reflects God's holy love by being characterized by three things. Number one, helping each other towards heaven. Helping each other towards heaven. Number two, confronting each other's sin. Confronting each other's sin. And then third, trusting in God's promises. Trusting in God's promises. It's my prayer that this study would help us better pursue the GBC that Jesus wants us to be. So let's think first about helping each other towards heaven. Matthew chapter 18 beginning in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We'll stop there. Uh, We're dropping here into the middle of a sermon that Jesus preached. You may not have noticed before, but in the Gospel of Matthew, there are five discourses, five sermons where where I think Matthew has gathered together the teaching on a topic that Jesus had given. Uh, This sermon is all about Christian community. It was prompted, you could look back up there to uh, chapter 18, verse 1, by the disciples asking who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's a topic they were keenly concerned about. Who's the best? How do we get ahead? How do we move up the ladder in this group. And in this sermon, Jesus tells them that that his kingdom flips the script on the world. The expectations that the world has has, are all turned upside down. So in his kingdom, you get to the top by being humble, like a child down at the bottom. That's how he begins the sermon. At the end of the sermon, he says that in his kingdom, you should be merciful, forgiving, not harsh and unforgiving. But here in the middle, he's talking about the attitude that we should have towards each other in the community. That's what he means there by these little ones in verse 10. That phrase, these little ones, you you could glance up to verse 6 and read the phrase, little ones who believe in me. It's a way that Jesus likes to refer to his disciples. Sometimes they are actually children But all of them are childlike in their faith and trust in him. He says here, see or make sure that you don't despise them. Don't despise other believers. Now, that's a a negative command. We might wonder, why would we be tempted to despise each other? Well, realize that Jesus is forming a community that's unlike any other in the world. The world forms community in a completely different way. It's almost always based on commonality. So it could be common ethnicity. We're all Malay or Chinese or Indian. 
It could be a, a common socioeconomic level. We're all middle-class working professionals. Or it could be based on common interests. We're all Liverpool football fans or something like that. Some kind of shared enthusiasm. We don't want to walk alone. In that sense, people form community based on a perceived benefit from the group identity. I'm friends with people who, who I think are going to benefit me somehow. But think about the fact that Jesus is doing nothing like that. He's forming a community based on a singular thing that cuts across all the other groups. The people who believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's it. That's the list. It's going to bring in people from all kinds of places. So in, in the, the first century, we, we see zealots who want to overthrow the government and tax collectors who work for the government, and, and there are respectable moral people, and, and, and there are prostitutes, and there are formerly blind beggars, and there are educated people of means, people from Africa and the Middle East and Europe. They've all been thrown together. Now he says they're the ecclesia. They're the church. There are a thousand reasons why this new group of people might despise each other. They might look down on each other. They, they, they might just ignore each other. But Jesus doesn't want his church to be like that. So look what he does. He says the negative, don't despise each other. But then he brings in the positive. And, and he's going to tell them that they should be like God. <laughs> it's an amazing thought. But, but look at this. Uh, these other believers around you, they may be new, they may be unimportant to you, but they're important to God. In fact, he says there, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. If you've ever heard of guardian angels, this is the main verse that it comes from. I don't think it means that each person has one and only one designated angel to take care of them. But collectively, Angelic beings are messengers of God meant to take care of Christians. So in the book of Hebrews, we studied this a uh, number of months ago, Hebrews 1, it says of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So the idea here is that God sends angels, his messengers, to serve believers because they're precious to him and they need help. And because these angels stand in the very presence of God, even the least of believers, though they're nothing in the eyes of the world, they have an audience with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every single one of them. I mean, how would you treat someone if you found out that they had an audience with the Prime Minister? Would that change your view of them in some way? That's what Jesus is saying here. The least of these, in your view, has an audience with the King of Kings. So I think we've got to stop and ask ourselves how we look at others in the church. Who is it that you're tempted to overlook, to ignore, to avoid? Do you gravitate towards people because of their faith? or because of some perceived benefit that they could give to you? Are you looking to bless people or benefit from people? 
I was thinking about this. I, I remember meeting a gal at our church in China uh, a number of years back. She, she found me after church, uh, and she was quite gruff with me. Uh, I remember she walked straight up to me, and she said, do you have any Bible studies in this church? And I, I said, yeah, we've started one on, on, on Tuesday evenings. And she said, that won't work for me. And she just walked off. That was my first interaction with her. And I had a number of more. They were similar like that. I, I, I concluded that she just didn't like me, but I noticed that she wasn't really forming relationships with, uh, with other people in the church very easily. Um, well, she signed up for a, a membership interview, and I'll have to confess to you that I was not excited. I, I was a little bit hoping she would find another church. Um, but she sat down, and, and as I always do, I just asked her her story. I, I asked her to tell me about her life. And she began unfolding to me one of the saddest stories that I'd ever heard. Uh, it was just a series of people who had been unkind and cruel to her. She, she had uh, some sort of a, a bone condition, a degenerative bone condition, that meant standing for her was painful all through her spine and her knees. And I have to tell you, there was, there was a moment, I knew I was going to do this, there was a moment in the membership interview where I realized she, she wasn't being brusque with me, she was in pain. You know what I mean? I had I, misinterpreted the whole thing. I was like, she doesn't like me. No, no she, she was in pain. I was reminded in that moment. <laughs> you know, her, her angels have an audience with the Father in heaven. They report to the Father. Her pastor needed to realize that he reported to the Father too. I also realized that our church was going to be defined far more by how we treated her than by how we treated a lot of other people. Jesus wants to push us even further than this, so he draws us in with a hypothetical question here. He asks, what do you think? Consider with me. If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the 99 to go in search of the one that went astray? And he, if he finds it, what does he do? Rejoices more over the one than over the 99. Now, I don't think you need to know much about sheep herding here. I don't imagine that many of us do. We can get the point. But, but Jesus, in case we might miss it, he fills out the meaning, the illustration, by saying, so it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Now, you can read that statement as just a, a statement about the eternal security of the believer, that Jesus will save all that are truly his, and, and that is true. But in the context of him giving the negative, so don't despise these other believers, and then the positive example here about how God the Father himself is like a shepherd committed to chasing down lost sheep, finding them, and rejoicing over them, and making sure that they don't perish meaning that they make it to heaven. That's what he's committed to. Well, the implication is that's how you and I should be living in this thing called the church. Friends, this will revolutionize your view of the church. What, what we're doing here is, is it's not some sort of spiritual jolt for your week, just a little bit of inspiration to start things off. It's not a version of tuition 
for your kids. It's not trying to check off some box about being a good person or about making our parents happy. I was raised in the church, so here I am, I'm in the church. We're not trying to find some music that we really dig or or a preacher that makes us laugh. What we're trying to do here most fundamentally is to help each other get to heaven. Isn't that what this is all about? Trying to watch over each other. If I begin to stray from the path, you come help me. I'll try to do that for you too. This is the way the, the, our church covenant says it. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. To watch over, pray for, patiently bear with, forgive, encourage, and admonish one another. with Love, humility, and gentleness. Now the elders have a special role in this as those called as shepherds of the flock. That's why we read that very moving passage from Ezekiel earlier. God takes it very seriously that his shepherds actually shepherd, that they actually feed the sheep. It's an important warning. But, but this, in this sermon, is not merely for pastors. It's addressed to all Christians. All of us should take the responsibility to be like God in chasing down stray sheep. I mean, if if you stopped coming to church for a number of weeks, don't don't you hope that somebody would notice? Somebody would reach out to you, say, are you okay? That's not nosy. That's necessary. If you care about somebody, you wouldn't be like, well, good good riddance. I mean, that's not what we're hoping for, right? We're hoping to be in a community where people care enough to reach out to each other, to ask how things are going, where members are trying to build deeper relationships with each other and we're giving permission to other people to speak into our lives, to know if we're in danger, to know if we're flirting with the world, where we're seeking to know and to be known. So this is number one. Jesus wants a church We're far from despising each other or ignoring each other. We're trying to help each other spiritually. It's the first way God's holy love is reflected in a church, helping each other towards heaven. There's a second thing that reflects his holy love, and that's confronting each other's sin. Let's keep reading in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right, Jesus is getting more specific here, isn't he? There are different ways to help each other spiritually. One of the biggest ways is confronting each other when we see each other in sin. What do we do then? Uh, This is super practical teaching here. Uh, If we were to sum it up, Jesus says, go to the right person with the right motive, following the right procedure. 
Let's break that down. Go. He says, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault. Now, the the ESV reading adds two words that are not in some of the earliest manuscripts, that little phrase, against you. Uh, This is a hard textual decision. This happens from time to time. About half of the early manuscripts of the New Testament just say, if your brother sins, the other half, if your brother sins against you. So in the NIV and NAS, you won't find those last two words. I think regardless, this passage has application both for interpersonal sins, where, where somebody has done something directly against you, as well as more generally, you just find out that they've committed some sin. I don't know how you found out, but you have found out. I think it applies in both of those cases. This text is really useful in conflict resolution, to be sure, but it goes more broadly. Remember, our immediate context is leaving the 99 sheep to go track down the lost one. Well, here, the lostness takes the form of a brother or sister in sin. That that word brother here, adelphos in Greek, sometimes used as a collective for male and female. That's how we should read it. What kind of sin are we talking about? Well, observe, first, this is an outward sin. This is something that can be observed by others. It involves witnesses, so it can be observed and confirmed. There's some kind of evidence that could be presented, and fault can be established. So, So there are sins like like greed or, or lust or hatred, they're, they're definitely sins. They, they will be judged by God. They do indeed hurt people, but they're not the things that are primarily in view here. So this is an outward sin. It, it's a serious sin. Not everything that might be an observable sin is to be chased down and rebuked. So, so married couples, I don't want you to start applying this every time you think your spouse has been short with you. Okay, that, that's going to create a bit of an issue. Uh, there, are, there are many minor sins that fall under the category of bear with one another. Love covers over a multitude of sins. I think there are a, a category of that. This is a serious sin. And this is an unrepented of sin. If the person had already repented, there's, there's no need to go. So they're blind to it. They don't want to admit it. Maybe you're, you're not sure at first, even. So outward, serious, unrepentant. But the point that in these cases, we're supposed to go. The Greek word here is an imperative, a command. Get off your duff. Go have a conversation with them. Not the church leaders, you. Not someone who you think knows them better. You. You have to go. Well, what if I'm not a confrontational type person? Sometimes I wonder, who, who are these people and how can I find them? Um, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I, I wonder, does anybody like potentially awkward, potentially relationship-breaking, potentially conflict-filled conversations? Me, me, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's an empty set. But we're supposed to go. Go and show him his faults. So you go and you explain what you've observed or heard. Sometimes in your going, you will be acknowledging that you're not sure. You're giving the benefit of the doubt. But even if they don't immediately agree or see it, if they have in fact done wrong, you need to tell them that. 
You need to go. Second, go to the right person. Notice who you go to between you and him alone, the person who sins. It's a wonder to me that the idea of church discipline we're talking about should be viewed as unloving when it is, in fact, worldly community, human community that is unloving. I mean, when someone sins, who gets talked to? Everyone except the person, right? Have you heard about so-and-so? Oh, it's a shame. It's a crying shame. Yeah, what did you hear? Human community talks a lot about people's failings. People's reputations are not spared. It's especially true in interpersonal conflict and sin where, where one party feels aggrieved, but they don't follow Jesus' words here. It can feel sort of good to vent our frustration to others. Maybe we don't even realize that what we're doing has no chance of solving the actual problem. We're, we're just compounding their sin by sinning against them through gossip. Many times I've had to stop somebody who's talking to me about somebody else's sin and just say, have you talked to them about it? Like, stop right there. Why don't you go directly to them? Jesus' wisdom here is profound for us. Think, think of all that could be avoided if we would just go to the right person. So go to the right person, third, with the right motive. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Herein is summed up a motivation that is entirely of love. What motivates this difficult task of going and having a difficult conversation? It's the real realization that sin destroys. It brings pain. It brings the judgment of God. So out of a concern for the person, you go, and if they listen, hallelujah. You've gained your brother. You, you, you've won them back to a right relationship with God and maybe with you as their fellow child of God. There's restoration, there's joy, there's fellowship. The fact that the goal is for them to listen also changes the tone, and the tenor of the conversation. You want to be persuasive. You want to communicate a sense of care, even as you bring up a difficult topic. The motive is love. Church discipline is an incredibly loving thing. Think of all the ways that it's loving. It's loving to that individual sinner who can be saved from the consequences of their sin. It's loving to the church that others could be warned about the danger of sin. It's loving to the watching world who might otherwise become confused about Christianity and what it's really all about. And it's loving to Jesus, whose reputation is on the line in the life of every Christian. So the motive is love. Go to the right person with the right motive, and then fourth, following the right procedure. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Sometimes people are hardened in their own sin. They can't see it. Maybe they've rationalized it. Or they're simply unwilling to do anything about it. This requires the next steps. And there's Old Testament background here from the book of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Taking someone along with you to have a a follow-up conversation clarifies the matter. Is this just one person's view, one person's opinion? Multiple people speaking in unison also has greater persuasive power. Remember, the tone and the tenor, again, is urging the person to repent. You're, you're trying to win them back. So, so let's, let's picture a person who's just kind of walked away from the church. So they, they haven't been coming to church in a long time. Uh, now, here we have two or three brothers and sisters urging them to come back to the fellowship of the church. The, the collective voice might prevail upon the person. But even that might not work. You may refuse to listen even to two or three. And so the final step is to bring it to the church, to the entire local gathering of the believers. Jesus says at this point they are to be treated, if unrepentant, as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now what does that mean? That sounds ominous. Well, it means someone outside the covenant community. Gentiles did not believe in the God of the Bible, and tax collectors were Jews who had made a a decision to work with the conquering Roman Empire and were renowned for living an ungodly life. The point is not to say that these people be treated rudely, but that these are not people you treat as believers. You're you're treating them as unbelievers. Uh, Keep in mind that Matthew, who's writing this, what was his job? He was a tax collector, all right? So, so he's, he's not saying be rude to them. He's saying you should help clarify their status. As a church, we're making a collective decision that the unrepentant sinner no longer has a credible profession of faith. The thing that is witnessed to in baptism, we can no longer say is there. They may continue to say that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but, but their life no longer backs up that profession. So we as a congregation are putting that person out of our membership, saying that we no longer affirm their claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Some people have mistaken this as shunning, but the goal for this person is still repentance. In our context, we would still want to speak to them, still want them to come to church, to hear the gospel preached. But the way we communicate with them should change. We would not treat them as a brother or sister in Christ. We would want to speak with them about their need to repent, the spiritual danger that they're in. Intimate fellowship we would avoid because we wouldn't want to confuse them into thinking they're okay when they're not. So Jesus tells us, go to the right person with the right motive, following the right procedure. He wants us as a church to live this way. The great majority of the time, we should be living in that first step. Our aim in our relationships and fellowships should should be to welcome others speaking into our lives. Proverbs says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so hopefully most things are caught early. They're not allowed to fester and get entrenched. But beloved, make no mistake, these are our marching orders. This is what we are to do, simple and straightforward. But let me ask you, are are you willing 
I think a lot of times when we talk about leaving the 99 and going after the one, we, we imagine it to be an easy task. We just set up a, a coffee appointment and sit down over a caramel macchiato and have a pleasant conversation and they agree with everything and everything works out great. More often, it's, it's a feeling in your stomach like you're sick because you know you need to talk to someone, but you have no idea what you're going to say and you don't know how they're going to respond. And you have no guarantee of how it's going to go. So we have to trust the Lord with this difficult task. I can tell you that the only people who have made a marked impact on my life are the people who were willing to speak the truth to me even when it hurt. To say, Mark, what, when I saw you do that, that was not right. Those are the people who have helped me grow. That's the kind of commitment we want to make to each other. So Jesus wants us to reflect his holy love by confronting each other's sin. There's a final way he wants us to reflect his holy love. Let's look third and finally, trusting in his promises, picking it up in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. We have three promises here. They're, they're meant as support and encouragement about the hard things he's just called us to. As we are faithful to try to help each other towards heaven, confront each other's sin, what has God promised? What can we expect from Jesus? Well, three things. First, we can expect Jesus' authority to stand behind us. That's verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing, that language in the first century was used of making decisions of right and wrong, truth and error. We, we saw last week that Jesus used it in describing the use of the keys of the kingdom to declare who is inside and who is outside the church. But we don't save anyone, but we make a declaration about what is right belief and what is right conduct. Here in the context about church discipline, we're saying about the unrepentant sinner, that is not Christian behavior. That, that is conduct inconsistent with a person who says, I follow Jesus. That person's profession of faith is not credible to us. When we do that rightly, Jesus says, I have your back. Heaven stands behind the church that does this rightly. So the first promise is that we have his authority. We have that power of attorney that Eugene talked about last week. Second, we can expect Jesus to work through our obedience to bring some people back from the brink. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, this verse is regularly quoted as a, as a prayer verse, as an encouragement to pray. Uh, I think that's fine. God does answer prayer, and corporate prayer of the kind described here is powerful when we 
unite our hearts together in asking God to act and do things. But here in context, it seems clear to me, the request is that God would work through our obedience and church discipline to bring people back from the brink of of destruction. That's what we're asking for. We're not asking that this person that we're putting out of our membership would would be forever out of our membership. We, We want the prodigal to come home. That's what we're praying for. Lost sheep to be found. The word here for anything is literally any matter or any deed. It often refers to a matter in a legal case. In English, anything just sounds like anything. But here it is about the matter or deed in question. So the believers and the church are pictured as praying. They're asking God to work. They're given a promise that God's going to respond. God is going to work to bring the wayward home. God is going to purify his church. Paul writes this way about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Friends, that's what we want. That's what we're all about. We expect Jesus to work through our obedience to bring people back and to save them. You may be here this morning and and be listening to this and and wondering what it's all about. If you've never understood the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me assure you, it is just that. It is good news. the, The bad news is that you are separated from the God who made you, and he is your judge. There is a day coming where you will stand before him and have to give an account for everything that you've done in this life, every, every thought, every word, every deed. You will have to give an account. And because he's a holy God, that judgment for you will go very badly. It will mean that you have to be separated from him eternally. But the good news that we keep talking about is that because of what Jesus did, because he came and lived the perfect human life, but then died on a Roman cross as a substitute for all those who would turn away from their sins and trust in him, that you can be saved, that you can be restored to a right relationship with your creator. Why would you not do that this morning? You can just, in the quiet of your own space, maybe even later today as you go home, just Pray to God and ask him to forgive your sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. Make a decision today to trust in him. That's what the church is all about. We want to preach that message and we want to help each other get to heaven. There's a third thing that we can expect. We can expect God to bless our church. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. An oft-quoted verse, rarely in context. The point of this is not to say that if a few of you meet up for lunch somewhere down in the CBD, uh, that Jesus is with you. Now, that's true, and you should do that. We should do that more often. Meet up uh, near your places of work for fellowship and encouragement. The promise of his presence 
is meant to encourage the church that is gathered in his name. His, his name is his character, his holy character, and his loving character. He's pleased to dwell with this kind of church. The church that founds itself on the right doctrine and the right discipline, loving discipline, can expect that he is among them. He is with them. 150 years ago, Baptist pastor John Dagg provocatively said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. He's saying negatively what this verse is saying positively. The converse is true. If we don't found our church on both holiness and love, we have no reason to expect his presence. We should conclude. As we begin this new year, there are things here for us to resolve, for us to set our minds and our hearts on, to pursue and to pray that we would be a church that reflects the character of God, searching for the lost sinner, not willing that any of these little ones should perish, helping each other towards heaven. Confronting the sin that is unrepented of and will bring disaster and destruction. And trusting in God to do the supernatural work that you and I can't do. Only he can. That's the church Jesus wants. That's the church that we can expect him to bless. I don't know how many of us will be here in 2050. We might be curious about what things will be like then. What songs will they be singing? How big will the church be? What will they look like? Will there be so many kids around? Those things are interesting. but They aren't nearly as important as this. Will we be a church that reflects God's holy love?